Welcome home, friend, to Sober Shares, episode 39. This podcast will highlight alcohol recovery stories via the real-life experiences of our guests and provide you with a front-row seat to the recovery journey. These deep-dive talks are guaranteed to inspire and entertain you. My name is Michael, and I'm an alcoholic. I have been sober since October the 10th of the year 2000. I am a member of the world's largest 12-step recovery program. Sober Shares is in no way affiliated with Alcoholics Anonymous. We speak only for ourselves and have no interest in outside issues. This podcast is not affiliated with any politics, organization, or institution. We hope to be of great service to the world when it comes to documenting recovery stories from the disease of alcoholism. I am glad you are here, and I hope you find what you are looking for. And now it's time to meet our guest. I will turn it over to them so they can introduce themselves and give their sobriety date if they choose to. Jordan C. I'm an alcoholic. I have been sober since September 24th, 2013. Okay, wow, that's fantastic. I'm super glad you're here today. How many years is that? Nine. Can you tell us a little bit about the early years of your life and what did your family look like and where you were born? I was born in Dallas, Texas. I'm the youngest of three boys. I'm 40. I grew up kind of North Dallas area, Preston Hollow area. My mom stayed at home until uh, maybe I was like five, and then she went, uh, worked for a nonprofit, Ronald McDonald House of Dallas. And then uh, my dad was a custom home builder, remodeler. My growing up was probably pretty normal. Went to a private Catholic school, kindergarten through 12th grade. I guess I could dive into where my life changed was when I was 12, and uh, my dad took me to school. Uh, one morning, and then went home and killed himself. And so my trajectory or, uh, had a very, it, it changed quickly at that point. So, um, you know, I guess I'm going to, does that make sense? Yeah, no, I appreciate you sharing that right off the bat. I was not aware of that. Jordan and I are friends, um, but we know each other from our home group here in North Dallas. We go to the same meeting. I did not know that. I did not hear that part of your story. I appreciate you sharing with us uh, that right off the bat. Anything else you want to say about that? Or can you talk about your mom a little bit? What do you want to, what do you want to dig into I next? I mean, you let me know whatever sounds interesting. I'm kind of an open book uh, these days. That was not always the case. Do you ever come to terms with something like that? You don't, you just, right? No, you just kind of learn to live alongside of it, I guess. Thank you. I thank you for I being honest. That. Yeah, it's something, um, you know, I think I can look back and realize like where my alcoholism took off and, and why. And I think a lot of it was just I was a scared little kid. My dad was worried. He was a home builder. He thought that the market was going to crash again like it did in the late 80s and didn't want to have to go through that again and had developed a lot of debt and got depressed and thought, I think genuinely, that uh, he thought we would be better off without him. He was impulsive. He left a note. My brother found him. It took me a while before I was able to like process or talk about it. I can remember going to therapy at being in sixth grade and he'd say, well, how are you? I'm fine. You know, I didn't want to be treated differently. I was a good athlete growing up. My dad died on a Thursday and we were having a playoff football game on Sunday, the following Sunday. And so you know, the big deal was, am I going to play? What's that going to look like? Do I, you know, my dad's funeral's on Saturday. Uh, this is the kind of cool thing that happened. I decided to play. 
my dad loved watching me play. My dad filmed all my games. He was always, you know, right there on the sideline watching me, um, very proud. So I played offensive and defensive line, and then I was also kicked. I kicked off and I kicked field goals. So this is sixth grade, and I just toe punched. I don't know if you know what a, a toe punch is. Tell the listeners what that I do. I yeah, do. so a toe Did punch you? is uh, for our listeners that unfamiliar it's uh, as opposed to soccer style kick a toe punch is where you literally just stand right behind the ball and you take like three steps and you just kind of kick it it reminds me like the charlie brown you know that charlie brown where mm-hmm. she takes away the did you have special shoes for that ball? no i just wore whatever <laughs> and i mean i, I had kind of fred flintstone feet i had very flat feet and i would just go one two three kick and uh this was tough because we had never made a field goal i'd made some in practice but, um, you know, I'm sixth grade. There's a lot that has to happen. You have to have, you know, that has to be a good snap, a good hold, you know, and then a good kick. And, and we just couldn't put it together. Uh, this playoff game, we ended up uh, late in the game. We were up by a little bit. And uh, it came time to kick an extra point. And I was like, okay, I'll go out there and, you know, do what I normally do. And so uh, I go out there, I kick, I take three steps, and then I kick it. And... I feel like I just chunked it, like it, you know, I pushed it. And so I'm starting to turn around and I'm, you know, because I don't think I'm going to make the field goal. And the ball starts kind of curving and curving and barely goes through the uprights. And then, like, it was a cloudy day all day, just, you know, cloudy, looked like it was going to rain, never did. Uh, And then all of a sudden the clouds just parted and, sunlight hit me and and my dad was with me then i believe so there's a lot of things like that that kind of showed me that you know he's with me there's an old saying that says time heals all wounds have you heard that saying sure time heals all wounds i used to believe that like when i first heard that from a few different people what do you think about that old saying that says time heals all wounds I think there's a few things on earth here that we as humans are put through that make it really, really difficult. I've never heard anybody say that has lost a child, what that would be like. And I know people that talk about, like I said earlier, living alongside of it. I do believe that like something good comes out of all things. Like, for example, like, I wouldn't be the same person. Uh, I wouldn't be the same. I'm a father now. I wouldn't be the father that I, that I am had I not had to grow up quickly at age 12 that kind of thing i think you live to learn you learn to live alongside of it but i don't think you know i don't know that i'm healed there's healing that takes place and i feel like everybody's different the grieving process is weird in my opinion everybody people stay at different stages of that process for different varying times and so uh it's a complicated what a that's a great question I started to ask myself that question at some point a number of years ago. And what I've, after I've pontificated on it and prayed about it and meditated about it and thought about it, is I don't believe that that's a true statement. I don't believe that time heals all wounds. And I just don't. And I hope I'm not making anybody mad out there that's listening to us or he's wrong or he's crazy or he's not spiritual enough or he doesn't know what he's talking about. Because what I'm not ta- what I'm talking about is my own personal experience. That no, I don't feel like time heals all wounds. Because there's been a couple things that happened in my life that uh, at 21 years sober, I've looked at, I've prayed about, I've meditated about, I've talked to people, I've worked on it, I've written on it, and I'm still 
not healed. If you want to use the word healed, because that's what we started talking about this time, heal all wounds. No, I'm not healed on that because I'm still suffering residual effects from that negative event. I am. I'm still suffering negative events from that event in my life that happened in 1994 that I am not healed from. Am I happy now most of the time? Yes. Am I comfortable with my own skin almost all the time now? Yeah. Have I been able to put long-term sobriety together? Yeah. But I'm still sad about that one thing that happened. And uh, it's something that I didn't have any power over. I couldn't change. I couldn't control it. But it still is a part of my life that affects me today. And uh, I just feel like that the people that were telling me that at that time we're just grasping at straws. Right. And we're maybe a little bit full of shit. Right. And we're maybe didn't know what else to say. And so they're like, oh, yeah, man, you'll be okay. Time heals all wounds. 94 was when my dad died. Yeah. Um, well, so, well, then I'm talking about happened in 94, too. Yeah. It was terrible. So that was what? This is 2022. So that was like 28 years ago. Right. Okay. So 28 years ago, I'm still... Um, it doesn't bother me every day. I don't cry every day, but I, I do think about it, you know, at least a few times a month. Sure. At least a few times a month. And that's 28 years later, I think about that. And I'm like, well, that sucked. Well, that was painful. Um, I was um, drinking and drugging then, and there are seven stages of grief. And I muddled my way through them mm-hmm. because, I mean, you were 12 at the time, so I'm mm-hmm. sure you probably weren't drinking and drugging yet. Maybe you were, but I, I was. Not quite yet. No, yeah, I didn't think so. Um, I wasn't. I muddled my way through the seven stages of grief, but uh, I just wanted to unpack that a little bit more and see what your thoughts were on what you think about that. Yeah, saying. that's a great, great thought. I could we could spend a lot of time on that alone. I I believe that um, you know something that would frustrate me or bother me when after this happened, after my dad died, would people would be like, "I know how you feel. I know it's been you know hard." Oh, no, It'd be like, don't. "No, no, you don't." Uh, <laughs> And so, oh, I know what you mean. You're like, you have no right, idea. Right, you don't. Man, this is some difficult territory we're in right now. Um, let's talk about what would you, since you were in that situation in 94, what would you have liked people to say to you? What could they have said? Would you have preferred them to be silent? I really don't know. When I was going through it, I don't know what I wanted them to say to mm-hmm. me. It was a family crisis. It was a destruction of, it was a divorce. My mom and dad got divorced. And it was horrific. And I knew it then, and I look back on it now, and what that was was the destruction of my family, my nuclear family. And that has not healed. They are not back together. Things did not work out. It was not a Disney movie. It was really bad. It destroyed my family. It didn't damage it. It destroyed it. Those are are two different words. It destroyed my family. When your mother ends up hating your father and your father ends up hating your mother and your family separates and now there's two homes and now there's divorce lawyers and now there's animosity and now there's confusion, hate, fear, greed, infidelity. Uh, You're just like, as a little boy, for me, I was drinking and drugging at the time. So I was like, I'll take a little bit more of those drugs and alcohol because I need to not feel this. Right. And that's, that's where I was. So circling back to my question, what could have someone said said to you back in those times that would have made any sen- more sense to you than I know how you feel? What would you have preferred? You know, gosh, I I don't believe just being silent. That was always hard, and, th- and that happened. I can remember going back to school 
when I first went back to school and walking into homeroom and like you walk in and everybody's talking and visiting. It's before school, you know, school hasn't started yet. And then I walk in and it just gets dead silent and everybody, you know, and I feel that, you know, awkwardness. I think that is what I would have liked to have been told is to be patient with yourself and that there's no, uh, there's no one way to, to, to do this and to just give yourself some grace and, um, you know, and that kind of thing. I don't, that's a beautiful thing. I don't think that many people speak to children that way. No, but, but they should, they should, they should speak to children that way. That's all I needed to know is that, you know, nobody ever told me that as a child Yeah, in any situation, give yourself the gift of time, you know, be easy on yourself. There's no one right way to handle this. This is difficult. Um, I just try to uh, support people now with love, and I just try to. I don't know if I'm doing the right thing or not. I'm like, I'm sorry. I, I was like, I hear you, and I'm sorry that happened to you. Right. I'm so sorry that happened to you. I, I think like, that's a great thing to say as well. That must have been difficult. There's anything I can do. If there's anything, if there's ever anything I can do for you in any way, please reach out to me. I'm so sorry that happened to you, and then I stopped talking. Yeah. I don't, I don't know what else to say. No, for sure. It's a tough situation. I mean, regardless whether it's a divorce or a death or because people don't know what to say and they don't want to say the wrong thing. Part of it, I think also is something saying that telling, saying, I don't know how you feel. Like I can't begin. Like I, I've got both my parents both my parents are married, you know, they're happily married, whatever that is. Like, I don't, uh, I don't know, but is what I can tell you is I'm here for you. If there's anything I can do, let me know. That would be another thing I'd like to hear. I think this is probably all very interesting to these listeners that are listening to this, and I'm hoping that they're scooping up some of these ideas and tools and and ways of speaking to each other that we're talking about and use them in their own life. That's that's a huge part of the reason I started this podcast, is so people can hear me interacting with other people and then scoop up that information and take that over into their own life and then apply it in their own life. I want to uh, hear people's stories. I want them to be honest and come on here and tell the truth. And then I want the listeners to be able to be educated and entertained and uh, enriched by the discussions and then turn around and take whatever pieces or parts they want to out of the podcast and then try to implement them into their own sobriety or into their own life experience or to their own walk through certain types of situation. What happened to your family next? When my dad died, he was in a lot of debt and he had, he had a life insurance policy. It was like a million and a half or something like that. And he didn't pay it. Like he wasn't paying the monthly premium on it. And they, they kept calling and saying, Hey, this is your last chance. We're going to cancel your policy. You know, if this, if you don't catch up on your payments or whatever. And so, and he didn't. And so, uh, he left us with, pretty much just some debt. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. uh, you know, we did, we had, we, uh, eventually we sold the house. My mom carried us. She, it was real important for her to, uh, for us to go to the same school, for me to go to the same school, to not be taken out. You know, I was in a private school, cost money. She was real, that was real important to her. And then, you know, having the same carpool, you know, that I, she, that was important. And so she did a lot of things that helped guarantee that we moved into a duplex my mom and stepdad still live there. We had some family friends, really close friends of my dad's, that helped my mom put a down payment on that house. Uh, she filed bankruptcy at the time, and she was the executive director of a nonprofit for 
25 years and was... Uh, was that the Ronald McDonald House? Uh-huh, yeah, so. she was. And so... That's a um, helping community. I'm sure they stepped in in some big ways. For sure. I mean, there were, you know, uh, a lot of people and things. Southwest Airlines was, uh, they're a big supporter of Ronald McDonald House and Herb Kelleher, their CEO, given my mom many plane tickets that she needed to get my brother. My brother was in California at the time, my oldest brother at college. Things would never be the same again, obviously. Externally, things didn't change a whole lot, and I'm grateful for that. How do you honor your dad today? Oh, you're going to get me teary-eyed. Well, there's Kleenex right there in front of you. (laughs) Um, Gosh, I've been given an opportunity because of sobriety, and really only because of sobriety and, and a connection to higher power with uh, some great things that have come into my life because of that. And uh, one of those is I have two uh, little boys. How old so are they? Three and five. Oh, my God. Yeah. You're right in the middle I'm of it. I'm in the thick of it. Three and five. Man, man. It's, uh, it's exhausting and How fun all is the that? things. It is fun. But uh, I get to be present for them. My dad was a great dad in a lot of ways. Like sometimes, yeah, totally. Uh, he was. He had a mental illness. He was uh, sick, and more than like he was a, a really good dad. So I've, t- I've taken a lot of the things that he did. I'm proud of my kids. I'm. Uh, I want to be there. I take them to do things. Things like my dad did. But another way we do is we're able to uh, we tell stories about my about my dad. That's so cool. One of the interesting things is uh, my mom ended up marrying one of my dad's best friends who was he was widowed also and you know they've known each other it's like since a tv they were show it's like that tv show i think there's a tv show called this is us no for sure and i think it was like that just like that and i mean <laughs> we used to go with the mcdermott's to on fishing trips <laughs> when i was you know five and if you would have told my mom that she would have married uh him he she would have at the time would have never in a million years thought that so we i have this close connection with my stepdad through you know he tells stories that my mom doesn't know you know stories from my dad they went to high school together and stories of wow. them getting into trouble it's and like a tv running show. into that and stuff like that and i so, think it's important to talk about people that passed away no matter how they passed away uh the native american indians do that all the time and right. i think it's an, that's part of their culture and i think sure. it's really important to speak about the ones that have passed on in our family for us and tell stories. I, I do it all the time. I'm usually the dude that does it. Like when we're hanging out with family and stuff, I'll be like, you remember when Lisa used to make those breakfast burritos? I was like, that's the first time I had a breakfast burrito when we were snow skiing up in Utah at uh, Snowbird. And I had never had a breakfast burrito, but Lisa had made these and I was like smelling them and watching her make them. And I'm like, what's that? And I can see her mother, like, and yeah. her sister. Like, when I talk about it these days, she's been dead for a while. And uh, so when I start talking about that, they kind of just look at me. And I don't care, man. Right. I'm talking about Lisa. Because I sure. have good memories of Lisa. She was a fine person. I have a lot of great memories of her, and I talk about her all the time. Yeah, that's keeping her alive. And it's neat to be able to, you know, my kids obviously never didn't know my dad. My stepdad is uh, is for all intents and purposes, is their grandfather, you know, Grandpa Jim. and then, But we talk about Grandpa Mike a lot, too. So uh-huh. uh, we were just at North Park Mall um, on Saturday, of last Sunday of last week, uh, my family, and we were just walking around. And they have uh, this parade of houses, of little, um, to- like, playhouses that have been built for, uh, and then they're going to be auctioned off to support a, a charity uh, they're really cool, neat. They've all been done by different people. There's maybe like a fire 
house and there may be like a Rolex like super modern looking house. There may be, you know, there's another one that is a replica of a house in Highland Park, that kind of thing. And so uh, my dad had built, when my dad was a home builder, had built one of those, uh, built a house that was auctioned off at North Park. And so being able to kind of talk to my boys, be like, hey, you know, Grandpa Mike, uh, he built one of these and they, you know, ask questions. What did it look like or what, you know. Do you have pictures of, of it? Uh-huh, so, I do. <laughs> yeah. So it's, uh, I appreciate you bringing that up. And it's not easy because it's, you know, the longer, I will say this, the longer, the farther away I get from that, it I feel like it's a little bit harder to do, to, to keep him oh. alive and to tell stories and, yeah. and that kind of thing. But it's it's important. I agree. Yeah, I know. It's totally important. So let's talk a little bit about spirituality. Where were you growing up with spirituality? A little bit, a lot, none, Catholic schools, Jewish schools. I don't know. What were you doing spiritual-wise? So I grew up Catholic, so I went to Catholic school, really kindergarten through 12th grade. It's interesting that the fact of before my dad died, it was... You know, I had religion class. We'd go to mass on Fridays. Usually, go on Sundays. Religion was—it wasn't interesting to me. On Sundays, I would pretend like I was asleep in the car on the way to church, and thinking that like my parents would just be like, "Oh, he's sleeping in the car. We'll just leave him. He can just hang out in the car while we go to church." So I wasn't spiritual. I wasn't really praying. Um, you know, I would go to confession, and confession was like, "Okay, what can I say?" to the priest that will be just enough to like be noteworthy, but also, or not noteworthy, but enough that like he won't understand or he won't be like, oh, that's Jordan, you know, or <laughs> let's do this of like something that's generic enough to where. Like what, what would you say? Oh, was like I was uh, rude to my brothers, <laughs> you know. I'd be like, that's Jordan. <laughs> yeah, exactly, right? So like, of course it was. And so that kind of thing, and then you do, penance and then that changed after i was after my dad died so i've never done that i've never done catholic thing i've seen it in tv sure so i have some questions about it first question is is there a minimum age i mean do you start at a certain point or do they have five-year-olds in there i mean how does it work yeah age wise great question so first grade you do your you start going you you t- Take your sacrament of reconciliation. <laughs> in first grade, what are you reconciling yeah, exactly. for? Doing what? You didn't do nothing. I mean, we used to like. <laughs> That's ridiculous. You would go into the, you'd go into the little. Uh, is it like on TV? Is there like a. It is. Is, is it, it just like, like that? And at the school and church I went to, there would be lights above. So when you hit your knees onto the, uh-huh. to kneel, yeah. when you go in there, it'll say, you know, red above there. And so saying hey somebody's in here really and what, so we used name to just mess with it uh confessional the confessional okay yeah. and so we would and you, you know, started going there in down. first grade first grade and then second really? grade you start getting you know holy communion you get and there's the it's, bread. it's supposed to be anonymous right is it you can't it is. you can't see the the priest right he's over there and Correct. you tell me what happened you walk in there and do you talk first or he talks first so or? you walk in there and you talk first or he'll recognize you yeah 
and uh, he opens a little screen, but you don't see him. I mean, you just hear him. Uh-huh. And then... What does he open the screen for? To hear you. Oh, okay. To let you know, like, it's, you know... He's here. Probably close the one on the other side. Okay. Where that person oh was. And God. then opens this one. <laughs> and uh, it's funny to talk about to somebody that's, that's not familiar. And the more I talk about it, I'm like, God, this is kind of weird. But uh, so then you say, like, bless me, Father, for I have sinned. It's been... A month since my last confession. Okay. And so, and then you go on and tell him about what you, where you've been wrong or what you've done. And uh, then he usually, uh, he may give you some words of wisdom, but oh, usually really? it's just like, here are your penance. So, really? okay. Based off of what you just told me, three Our Fathers, two Hail Marys, uh-huh. uh, you know, <laughs> and then, you know, it gives you a, a prayer or blesses you and then you go out and then you go and you do your what does he say at the end doesn't he say you've been forgiven or something yeah um golly it's been a while yeah it's Uh, probably been a month since your last confession yeah it's been (laughs) it's been a month and change yeah and so oh maybe you've been yeah like go in peace basically is what he tells you yeah go in peace yeah so every once in a while to serve the lord go in peace to serve the lord go in peace i've i have i've no idea what you're talking about because I've never, right. I've never done this at all. I've seen it on TV, but I've never done it. It's not all that different. So when you, so sometimes he'll give you advice, like like if you say I kicked my dog or something, yeah, he'll be like, like don't do that. Pets or, are a blessing from God, and we love our dogs. And there's, you know, we need to not do that. Okay. It was always kind of general advice, and again, I was like trying to say like just enough to where it wouldn't be noticeable, but enough to be like, oh, that's legitimate for a you know seven year old. He talked back to his parents and he did this, he did that. But I think that's like, a pretty cool part of that religion. Yeah, I do. I do think that that's a pretty, I've never done it. Right. I, I think it's cool though. I never have done it, but I, I think that's cool that you can go into a confessional and basically in the way that I would see it as an outsider is unload, man, lighten your load, you know, let someone of the cloth, a leader in your faith, know that you have been less than perfect and you have sinned and then he absolves you of that and then you can roll forward. Right. I think it's really cool, especially if you were like doing a lot of bad stuff all the time. But if you go in there the same and say the same thing all the time, he probably is like, well, he knows who, doesn't he know who it is? I mean, (laughs) maybe you can disguise your voice a little bit or no, uh, (laughs) I don't really know because I think we're all, and you, did, you know, none of it was very exciting stuff. I mean, I was, I got into trouble, but it wasn't like very interesting, exciting, memorable things. But Shoot. it's like a fifth step in a lot of ways, right? I agree. Yeah. It's, it reminds me of the fourth and fifth step. So you go out and live your life and you accumulate all the damage in your fourth step. And then you go to the fifth step and tell them right. two questions. Do you go to uh, church now? And two, when was the last time you were in the confessional? So the last time I do go to church, not as often as, as I would like to, uh, my wife and I, so my wife was brought up Presbyterian. And so, um, I was brought up Catholic. I, let me back up for a minute. So after my dad died, I was like, you know, I don't need this religion stuff. I don't need God. I don't, for somebody that's going to take my dad from me and from my, uh, sweet mom and my brothers and, uh, you know, if you need it, that's great. Like, if pray, do whatever you need to do. But for me... Did you think it was fake or phony, or did you just reject something that you thought was real? I rejected something that I thought was real deep down. That's a great question. But I think 
from a surface level, it was like, this is gimmicky. This is, I don't need this, you know, but yeah. I think deep down it was like, I'm going to go my way and God's going to go his way and we'll choose to not be yeah. together kind of thing. And so that was kind of an odd dynamic of going to a Catholic school for the, you know, until you were 18. So, you know, I didn't get back on board until I got sober. And one of the first things I did was write down, like, what do I want a God to be and who do I want? And the adjectives that describe the, the perfect, ideal, higher power for me. The more things change, the more they stay the same. My oldest son is at the same school that I went to kindergarten through eighth grade and so it didn't like we didn't plan for it to be that way yeah we looked at like four different schools and toured and we both really liked the school so uh you know there's some teachers that are still there from when i was there <laughs> and coach my mentor coach uh does he remember you when you were doing your toe kick in there yeah for sure I mean, like, he has an incredible memory <laughs> he's been there a long time and he's i got to go coach with him uh we coached football together and we coached basketball and he was very much a mentor of mine he says that, that my son runs like me. And so it's interesting the wow. fact that he can remember that. But, and so, uh, so we, go to, we, go back to, we go to Catholic Church some, um, but would like to go more than we do because it's, this is an excuse, but it's kind of hard with the pandemic hit and then we've got a three-year-old and a five-year-old and it's a lot of work yeah. to get them there. It's been a tough, tough three, three years for the world mm -hmm. with the pandemic hitting. So when was the last time you were in a confessional? Yes, to answer that question. So I went to um, actually taught and coached and was athletic director of a, of a uh, Catholic grade school for about a year and a half until I was let go. I remember we were, the kids were doing confessional and going, and I remember the, the principal coming over to me and saying, hey, I need you to, you need to go to confession because they... Because you seem like a bad dude. <laughs> that, yeah. And I'll be like, but, you know, the day ends in two and a half hours. I don't think we'll have enough time, right? I mean, I'll need to, you know, can I stay after? This could be a while. And so... Uh, How long had it, had it been? It had been probably 10 years. Oh. 12 years. So what did you think when he asked you to go in the confessional and you hadn't been in there 10 years? I think I said, you know, I think I just said like, I'm, you know, bless me, Father, for I've said it's been a long time since my last confession. I don't think I gave him like an exact, uh, and then gosh, it was not any different. My experience than when I was, it took me back to being a seven, eight year old and being like, what do I need to say? Like without, you know, so I wasn't, uh, my life was falling apart at that time. And so I could have easily gone into what, you know, everything, I just wasn't ready for that. So I wasn't ready for any kind of healing to take place. So you just kept it short and I sweet. I kept it short and sweet. You didn't cry or break down or no, anything like that? No, none of that. I just kept it like, I treated, you know, my family unfairly or I, I don't even, I mean, I don't, it was not, it was very, very generic. How did you feel when you came out where you're like, what was that? I look guilty. Because I mean, why? Because I wasn't open and honest oh. and I wasn't like, you know, I've been, you know, taking pills from, you know, for abusing Adderall or, you know, I was, you know, that kind of thing. It was more of just, Do I wasn't there Do you still believe yet. in it? Do you still believe in confession? I mean, have you been in there again since that time? No, I haven't. Really? Um, we got to get well, you no, back I, in yeah, there. Right. <laughs> that's where I'm headed after this. Uh, I'll take you over there and watch you walk in there. That's right. We'll go and... Uh, you you no, probably need like two hours in there. Just at least. <laughs> yeah, we would need a while. And he, 
the amount of penance that I would be given would be. I was uh, curious something. to me, dude. Yeah, it's interesting. Know, dude, I know nothing of that world. Yeah. I know nothing. But you're the first person I've ever talked to about it. That's interesting. Yeah, it's, and to say that, like, I guess I haven't done the formal process of a confession, uh-huh. um, but, like, I talk to God. And, yeah, and, yeah. And you find, do it other ways. I do it other ways. And what are the things that they tell you to do? The Hail Marys and like some Like a other? Hail Mary and Our Fathers. Uh-huh. Um, and then, like. Those are just rote prayers. Active contrition is another. What's that? You have to do something. Uh, it's a prayer that is um, about being, you know. So you go home and just say sorry, those. You say those. You may say, it'll be like, all right, you've got seven Hail Marys and oh. five Our Fathers. <laughs> and let's see. Oh, yeah. Oh, you kicked the dog. So that's going to be another two, you know, that yeah. kind of thing. Oh, and so wow. It was. Uh, I did my fifth step with a Catholic priest. There that, you go. Yeah, check this out, dude. Wow. Check this out. I did my fifth step with a Catholic priest in Carlsbad, California, at a church called St. Michael's off of Tamarack Avenue and the Five. And the reason that I did my fifth step with a Catholic priest is because my sponsor in Alcoholics Anonymous had relapsed and died. Mm. And so as soon as my sponsor relapsed and died, I had no one to read my fourth step two, which I had completed and written and was ready to deliver. And so I trounced and bounced around San Diego County to all the different AA meetings. And everybody knew that my sponsor had passed away and everybody knew me. And so they knew that I was like an AA orphan at mm-hmm. that point, like a little orphan. And I How was much just, sobriety did you have at the time? How many months? Okay, so you're in months. Six months. Okay. I think I had six months sober. That's just six months sober. But I was going to meetings every day. I had meetings all over San Diego County, so everybody already knew me. And they're like, that's that dude. And they're like, oh, my God, Gary P. just died. That's his sponsor. What's that guy going to do? And I was like, yeah, what am I going to do? Right. So I bounced around, bounced around, bounced around. And I, but in meetings, I would talk. I'd be like, yo, I got my fifth step ready to go. Four step ready to go. I want to read it, but my sponsor's dead. I don't know what to do. And the book says you can pause and not do it if you have a good reason, but be ready to go with it through with it at the first opportunity. I was like, I don't know what to do. And so this dude that I did not know rolled up on me. He goes, hey, man, there's this priest. There's this old priest. He's like 83 years old over at St. Michael's Catholic Church in Carlsbad. And he's not an alcoholic. And he's not sober, but he knows about us. He knows about Alcoholics Anonymous, and he's heard a lot of fist steps. And he can do it for you, and he can hear your fist step. And I thought, nobody else has given me any any other options or ideas or anything. That's the only thing that was delivered to me. There were no other options. There wasn't a choice B, C, D, or E. Right. I was only presented one option by this one dude that I did not know. And so he gave me the dude's phone number and name. And I went home and I was like, I've got to read this four-step somebody. I got six months sober and I want to say sober. And if I don't read this four-step somebody, I'm probably going to drink or use drugs again. Yeah. So I'm going to call this church and see if this dude can talk to me. Called this church, this female answered. And she was his secretary. And she's like, hi, St. Michael's Church. I was like, hi, my name's Michael. I'm an alcoholic. And this is what's going on. Blah, 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 blah. Everything I just said. She's like, hold on. 
and I could hear her talking to somebody in the background. So she obviously just spun her office chair around and was yelling at the old man back in the right, office. Right. He's like, tomorrow at two o'clock. I could hear him yelling that tomorrow at two. Sure. And so she's like, okay, sir, tomorrow at 2 p.m. He'd be happy to see you. He'll have three hours set aside for you. And I was like, three hours? I was like, oh, dude, okay. So anyways, I was like, okay. So I go the next day, and I pull up to this Catholic church. And I'm not Catholic. Right. And I pull up to this church, and I look at it. And I was like, oh, my God, dude. <laughs> so I go so in there. intimidating. Yeah, I go in there. And I was like, this is going to be weird probably. So I roll in there, and I meet his secretary. And she's like, sit in that chair right there. And I was like, okay. So I sit down but I only sat down for like 15 seconds and he's ready and I can see him coming out of his office and he is old old he's a high mileage 83 year old dude right and I've never seen somebody walk with two canes I've seen a lot of people walk with one cane my man had one cane in each hand and he was hobbling towards me like Yoda with two canes and I was like, whoa. I was like, this dude is barely mobile, but he's still in the church hearing people's stuff, you know, and check right. this. And he was dressed nice. And he looked, he reminded me of my grandfather who had passed away at that point. And I was like, okay. And so he's like, come on in here, young man. And I was like, okay. So I go in there and I explain to him what the deal was, but he already knew what the deal was. Yeah. He already knew. Yeah. He's like, have a seat, man. He's like, I've heard a bunch of these, my son. So let's go. And I was like, okay, man, I'm, trying to get sober i'm 30 years old and i've been sober six months and i wrote this stuff down let's go and he's like yeah let's go so we start doing it and we start we get into this dance i say something then he says something then i say something then he says something and then i start crying and then he just kind of looks at me with loving eyes and then i start crying more and he just is quiet he's just there and then i break the fuck down and I really start crying. Yeah. Because I'm releasing demons. Yeah. And I'm getting clean and I'm getting even and I'm dumping out. <clears throat> I'm dumping poison out. I'm vomiting poison out. And uh, he just looks at me <clears throat> and he tells me uh, that uh, God loves me and that he forgives me and that I'll be okay and that um, he's glad that I'm there and I'm not a bad dude. I'm just a sick dude. Oof. And I was like, holy shit. I was like, this dude's cool, man. And so um, <clears throat> when I was able to get myself together, he's like, let's keep going. And so we kept going, and we did the fear inventory, and then we did the sex inventory. We did the resentment inventory. And he talked to me about a bunch, dude. And he had been around the track a lot. Right. He had been around the track a lot of life. He had been around the track of life a lot of times. <clears throat> and he um, downloaded some real important stuff into me that day. And I was with him for three hours. I probably cried for an hour of it. Two hours we talked, one hour I cried. <clears throat> and he downloaded a lot of stuff into me. Uh, this was 22 years ago that uh, I still use and think about today. It helps me be a better man. <clears throat> and uh, he helped me come to terms with a lot of stuff and uh, let go of a lot of stuff. And uh, he was just a really good dude. What an amazing experience. Yeah. Um, I can't imagine. I can remember being like six months sober and somebody in a meeting that, um, you know, was going every day and I would see all the time and he had long-term sobriety and he relapsed. And I remember that kind of threw me. And I was like, oh, my gosh, how could you know this person relapse? What's going on? Um, and so I can't imagine what you were going through with 
your sponsor, what, how fragile you must have been at that point. I mean, it was that horrific. It really but, was a life and death mission that you were on. Yeah, it was horrific because my sponsor had just died of active alcoholism. And I knew that I was in this, I knew he was just like me. I was like, my sponsor, Gary P, was just like me. And he fucking relapsed and he died. And it only took him 10 days to die after he was sober for five years. I was like, I got to read this to somebody. So anyways, what I want to say is, like, I'm not Catholic, but the Catholic people saved me. And so I only know that dude. I only knew that dude. I'm 51 years old. I'm going to be 52 years old next month. And in my 52 years on this planet, I knew that dude for three hours. And of the three hours that I knew that dude, like, he helped me. He helped me, like, put my old self away and then get a new me to go forward. And uh, I don't think about that very much. But, uh <clears throat> But I never became Catholic. Yeah, did you have any kind Zero. of interaction with him later on? Never. Yeah. And I never wanted to be Catholic. Right. And I never wanted to go to church like right. that. I'd go to church now, but it, I, not not that, not in that way. He wasn't rah-rahing me, dude. Yeah. He wasn't rah-rahing me. Yeah. He wasn't trying to convert me. He wasn't trying to get my email address. Right. <laughs> he wasn't trying to get my phone number. He was just trying to be there as a representative to God to get me closer to God and to forgive me for a bunch of bullshit that I had behaved poorly uh, in a lot of different ways. And he wanted to absolve me of that and then slide me closer to God. He was the facilitator of my forgiveness. For sure. And it like lightened my load. Yeah. So I got much respect. And I, I forget, I don't like. That's why you're so interested in what the confessional looks like from a Catholic Maybe subconsciously. Yeah. Maybe subconsciously. Not but all that different than what you were doing, but I was, you know, not being yeah. completely open and honest. Yeah. We were not in a confessional. I could see him and he could see me. He could see me fucking breaking down. Yeah. Like he could see me like releasing the toxins. And he's like, I'm just going to sit here and be quiet. And I just fucking bawled. And I was like, bah, bah, bah. What? He helped me see a lot of things more clearly. Because a lot of shit that I had thought about, like who I was, who you were, and who God was, was delusional. Yeah. Delusional. Same. Delusional, dude. I was not really sure who I was. I wasn't really sure who you were. I didn't trust you. I didn't know too much about God. And so he helped me like put a lot of that into focus in three hours. Yeah. <laughs> he did, dude. This He's wild. He did, he did a lot of that in three hours. He's like, this is who you are. This is who the other people in your life are and the people in the world are, and this is who God is. So when you leave here, think like that. And all that other bullshit you were talking about, right. flush that in the toilet. There you go. Because you were, you were incorrect, young man. Yeah. Because I was 30. I mean, you might think that you're smart at 30, but I wasn't smart at 30. No, I was 31 when I did my fifth step. Yeah, I was 30 years old. I wasn't smart, man. I thought I knew a couple things, but I did. And that old 83-year-old preacher was like, dude, you don't know shit. He's like, you think you know a lot, but you're, you're wrong, dude. You're wrong about who you are. You're wrong about who society is and who all the other people are. And you're wrong about who God is. Yeah. So. That's, <laughs> that covers it. I mean. <laughs> he broke it down, man. When I left that place, I went home and I had to find a place to be quiet for an hour, like the big book says. Mm -hmm. And think about the first five, five proposals. And that was going to be the uh, triumphant arch through which I passed a free man. And that totally happened because when I walked metaphorically walked through that arch that day and into that night, I woke up the next day and I was not the same guy. Yep, same I was here. not the same dude.
that knot that I had since my dad died, I, the knot in the stomach that I tried to use drugs and alcohol to numb, it didn't go away until after doing my fifth step. It felt like boulders were lifted off of me. Yeah. And then I slept really well for the first time in a long, long time. Woke up like refreshed. That knot was finally gone. And I didn't want to drink or use drugs at that point. Either that's when that went away. No, you're doing the work. When you when you, when you, you know the deal, man. When, and the listeners that, that know the deal, they know the deal. Uh, when you're when you're when you're in four and five, you're doing the work. You are if you if you're if you're and you're digesting some big chunks of truth about yourself because you're writing all this stuff down. You're looking at your resentments. You're looking at your fears. You're looking at your sex conduct. And then not, not only that, but you're 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 gaining a level of humility by going and finding another human being to listen to you. And then when they listen to you and give you that feedback, you can trust them. And you get closer to them, closer to God, and closer to your true self. Um, I really haven't thought about that fifth step very much. I mean, I have. I know that's, it's a big deal. But I think it's that... It's a big deal. I think it's a big deal. Maybe it's why I'm still sober, dude. What you just described, the, the person that you were then, to have that kind of experience, like that, you're not going to get that anywhere else. Nothing else, like, facilitates something like a guy like you going in and having an experience like that and being open and honest and yeah. and telling that you know him and and being given all that grace uh it's beautiful mine wasn't nearly as intimidating my sponsor at the time was is your sponsor so scott was pretty easy to i didn't know that yeah that's cool and scott was your sponsor when you did your fist step mm -hmm. so scott heard your fist step mm -hmm. i'll ask him about that later i mean this is the first time in a couple of decades that i really thought about it too much and and this is maybe this is the first time i've kind of like really realized it is that i did my fist step with somebody who wasn't an AA. i did my fist step with somebody that wasn't an alcoholic but he was a fist step ninja this dude was a fist step ninja because he had heard a bunch of them and he was a man of god and talk about feedback I'm not going to go into super heavy detail right now, but the feedback that he gave me, he broke the molds of my old way of thinking and let me get free mm -hmm. to embrace a new way of thinking about, like I said, everything, everything. He recalibrated my whole shit. He's like, dude, forget that. That's not right. And I was like, I think I trust you, dude. And I think you're older than me. And I think you're smarter than me. And I think you're more spiritual than me. And you're telling me that I'm wrong about thinking about things like that. So maybe I am wrong thinking about things like that. I'm going to think about, like, what do you want me to do again? He's like, blah, 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 blah. I was like, okay, man, that's my new deal. That's my new mantra. I'm going to forget all that old stuff. I'm just going to do what you said. And it's crazy that I only met him once, man. So anyways, that's this, really cool. this whole podcast is not about me. It's supposed to be about yeah. you. I'm but happy to interview you. Yeah, you're bringing up some gnarly, some gnarly stuff for me today, man. We, we, we got into fourth or fifth gear right off the, I mean, the first I three minutes you dropped the accelerator down. Yeah, we I'm, just, a, I'm somebody that like, I don't enjoy small talk. I apparently so like, not. I, we're not, we're not going to talk about the weather or talk about the Cowboys or yeah, that man. kind of thing. Let's just you you know, got right get on into the gasoline it. pedal, man. <laughs> I don't know, man. This podcast is going different than all the other ones. Yeah. I've, yes, this is very different. I, I do, I've done 38 before this. None have been like this so far. Let's just keep it going like it is. And I want to ask you next about, like, we haven't, uh, like, um, certified you as alcoholic or no, drug addict. But I take your word for it. Yeah. You, you are and you were. But So let's jump forward to when you got sober. You mentioned earlier that one of the things that you did when you got here 
is you got back in touch with your childhood religion. And it sounds to me like somebody asked you to do an exercise where you wrote down the, the traits that you wanted your higher power to have. Can you talk maybe a little bit about that experience in the second and third step when you got into early sobriety and how you rekindled or revived or renewed your thoughts about your God or spirituality or religion? I guess let me back up a little bit. I I guess we're kind of skipping totally we're my just, story, but like here's what we're jumping around. We're jumping around, and so here's where um, you know I had gone to. I woke up one Saturday and decided I didn't want to live like this anymore, and I didn't know what to do. And I called my mom and stepdad, and I said, "Hey, can I come over and talk to you guys?" And then I just went over there, and I just bawled, crying. I was like, I've, "I think I'm an alcoholic. I don't know what to do." They suggested. I call a family friend, Paul T., who at the time had 34 years of sobriety, somewhere around the 38 maybe. Uh, he's kind of a staple at Preston Group at 6 o'clock. And, uh, and so I called him, and it got, went to his voicemail. I was like, hey, this is Jordan. I just wanted to call. Uh, pick your brain sometime. Uh, maybe take you to lunch about how you don't drink. And call me back when you can. And uh, he called me back shortly after and said, hey, there's a meeting at 5. At, I want you to meet me down by the Black Eyed Pea. Do you know where Preston oh Center is? Oh, my God. I, I forgot like, yeah, about the absolutely. And so <laughs> it. Uh, we went. He said, meet me outside there at 5.55. There's a meeting I want you to go to. So I uh, went to the meeting and like the thing that I did not want that I was real nervous about happening is like, gosh, what am I going to do if I run into somebody I know? And I walk in and, oh my God. and I'm like, catty corner look. I'm like, that guy looks like Warren. And I look back and I was like, oh my gosh, it is Warren. And he kind of turns out of the side of his eye and he sees me and he does a double take also. So this is Tad who... Uh, goes by Warren. He, Tad was in my business networking group. Okay. He was the president of this group. So small group, like 20 people. Yeah. And he would, uh, he was the president. So he would like stand at the front. I didn't know him that well. I'm <laughs> getting in, you know, drugs and alcohol had taken its toll <laughs> on me. And so, you know, I, and so, you know, we talked a little bit about business before, but definitely nothing like this. And so he invited me to, dinner afterwards with a group i went we went to el phoenix after the meeting and then nice. i told him i was like so this whole aa thing this 12 steps like i was reading them on the wall and like the ones with god in them like i'll just like skip over those like i don't really need to do the the god stuff because i'm not a big like i'm just not a and i know you may be i know you're you know you're spiritual that kind of thing but for me it's just i just I'm going to skip those. You were telling Tad all this. I was telling this Tad this. <laughs> at El Phoenix. Uh-huh. <laughs> he's like, yeah. And then he, yeah, he's like, yeah, that, that's not going to work. So he called me later on that night and we talked for like two or three hours, but I, I pretty much just listened and he explained to me why, how this thing works and that it's not going to be my ability to have willpower or, you know, restrain from, from drinking that kind of thing. It was going to be something greater than myself that was going to take care of this. So I explained to him my kind of my Catholic upbringing, that kind of thing. And he suggested I write down on a front piece of paper of like what the God that I remember as being. And so it was like this vengeful, this, you know, all powerful, this, uh, some of those things that I viewed God as. And then he said on the other page, write down and say in a perfect world, like nothing else matters. You get to create this, God, what were what would be some adjectives that you would want to describe? I guess so. It was like a friend, or you know, uh, 
patience and understanding and some of those things. And I wrote that down, and the next day I said, hey, I did this. He's like, okay, that's your God. Like, that's who, you know, so, and kind of run with that. So um, Paul had taken me to this meeting, and then he was like, he bought me a big book, and he bought me a 12 and 12. And the only thing he said to me, um, he's very old school AA. He's, uh, you know, went to A&M. He's a rancher, real estate agent. Uh, so he comes up, and he just says, this is our literature, we do this one day at a time. And he gives me, <laughs> and come back tomorrow. Yeah. So I listened to him, and that's what I did. Wow. I want, that's beautiful. That's beautiful. I want to ask you a couple more questions about that, but I want to make a couple of announcements first. And I think when we come out of this announcements portion of the show, I want to quickly, and just to, you know, five, ten minutes, something like that, kind of go back and cover your drinking career and kind of get you, get you sober, and then we'll dive into some of the questions about your current sobriety. Sobershares.com is ready for you to explore and enjoy. Here's a list of the things that you can do on our website. You can listen to all of our episodes, read our show reviews, email me directly with your comments or suggestions. My email address is mike at Sobershares.com. You can record a message in your own voice by clicking the blue microphone icon that can be played back on our next episode. You can access our social media platforms on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. You can support us financially with a donation by clicking the PayPal donate button on our website, SoberShares.com. This donation process takes less than one minute, and your generosity will allow us to continue to create content for you at the highest level. Think of it like passing the basket at a meeting to help keep SoberShares open and operating smoothly. Your donation will be used to help us cover our monthly operating expenses. If you have any trouble with the donation process, just email me directly at mike at sobershares.com and I'll email you back directions. I know some people are technologically challenged and I can send you a direct link. I want to mention a few of our listeners by name who have made a financial gift to move this project forward. I'd like to thank Barbara and I would also like to read some feedback that we received from Barbara. It says, hi, Michael. I listen to Sobershares when I travel. I'm going to start at the beginning and listen to everyone instead of jumping around to all the different episodes. I want to start at the beginning and hear all of them. You are giving back so much. Thank you. Warmest regards, Barbara R. So thank you, Barbara, for the donation and the feedback. Now let's get back to our guest. What age were you when you first started drinking? 10 or 11, but really that was like at Thanksgiving. I had some champagne or something like that and felt kind of funny. The other time... I guess I was 14. I, we'd taken uh, alcohol. This is kind of a, uh, you know, this will tell you about who I am. And I go, I would go strong. <laughs> so I took a, my friend's house had some Guinness Extra Stout his parents had in the fridge. And that Guinness Extra Stout is like, you can, you can drop a quarter in the top of it and it won't float to the bottom. It's real thick. And so that was like the first time I'd really had beer and I drank like three of them and then I ran around the front yard and acted crazy and that kind of thing and then the next time was I was 15 we had gone to a party and we'd hidden some beer that we'd gotten from an older brother uh we'd gotten like an 18 pack and we took it back to a friend's house because we were all going to spend the night and everybody else had like two maybe one uh, I had like 14 and I got sick and um you know, that was kind of how I drank. And then I caught, uh, it was fun. I mean, high school, I, as I said, I was a, um, an athlete. I played football and, uh, 
and was was pretty good and then but i i also like to have a good time and so i would drink and um you know i thought i don't know i thought i was growing up i thought you know i was a party guy and so i would do that and then in college i was in a fraternity um where'd you go to school texas tech okay lubbock lubbock texas yeah yeah there's not a whole lot to do in lubbock other than (laughs) uh drink and so we you know at that point uh, it was more of a social lubricant kind of thing where it was i i felt i didn't feel part of and i felt a little bit different so drinking helped kind of even though i was in a fraternity and even though i had a lot knew a lot of people at tech and there was a lot of kids from my high school that went and and that kind of thing it was uh, i still just didn't feel a part of and so uh you i drank like everybody else drank thursday friday saturday nights you know there wasn't too out of control i was but i was always the guy like there were signs like i was the guy that you know the after party everybody else is kind of like it's you know hey we're done like show's over we're going home we're going to sleep we're going to get food whatever and i'm the guy that's like hey let's keep you know drinking i wasn't using anything else it was just i just wanted to stay up and uh like there was never enough and so we always more is always better and so uh i you know in short and i I can get into this as much as you want but i started seeing a i'll seeing a doctor because of my dad i wanted to deal with my dad's death and uh when i was about a sophomore junior in high school and so i was continuing to see this doctor in college and i thought you know i'd taken some adderall from uh during finals and during before big tests to pull all-nighters and that kind of thing. And I really liked the way it made me feel. I liked the rush of it all. And so I talked to this doctor that I had been seeing and said, hey, I would love to, like, I think I have, like, I was diagnosed with, like, mild ADD when I was, like, second or third grade. And uh, will you write me, you know, script? And he did. And then I continued to act like I needed more because I was taking more. I never took that. It's called Adderall. What does that do? How does that make you feel? Yeah, so it's... uh, I've never done cocaine, actually. It's <laughs> and so that's what people compare it to. Yeah, and it's a pill. It's a pill. Yeah, and it's it's for attention deficit. So it helps you concentrate. You know, you can focus on you know cleaning your house or taking tests or you know those kind of things. But if you keep t- like for people that need it, it, it calms them down and allows them to focus. For people that don't really need it. It's kind of, it's, I mean, it's an amphetamine, it's a it's speed. It, mm-hmm. I got to where I couldn't uh, operate without having it. And so... Uh, Are you supposed to, uh, is it recommended dosages to take every day? I guess for yeah, some people yeah, it is. Yes. Yeah. So for some people, other people, it's like, just take it when you need kind of an extra, you know, you've got, yeah. you know, you've got a full day, that kind Did of thing. Did you ever buy any of it on the street illegally? Like party drug? Mm-hmm. Is it a party drug? Or can it yeah, be? it can be. I mean, it, you can drink forever on it. Did you ever buy any? Like were there people yeah. selling it and stuff? Yeah. Yeah. How much? 25, 10? I don't remember. Yeah. Maybe it was like five bucks a five bucks a pill. something but i was getting uh, prescribed it and so that was a big you know i kept saying i needed more um and then like while that's happening i graduated i had really good grades in college um high school i did not i did not apply myself for some reason college i did and then uh after college uh in short i i would lose jobs like jobs that i really loved and cared about uh because i couldn't um, I couldn't wake up in the morning sometimes. So I'd be staying up like two, 
you know, two or three nights in a row all day. And then I would just like crash and, um, you know, they need you to show up to work on time and they would give you one, you know, here's your last chance. I was always the guy that would get that. Like, we, we really like you. You're a good guy, but like, we need you to show up on time. And that's why you're, that's why, you know, we're letting you go. So I lost jobs, a sports marketing company that I really liked. Uh, I lost a job as, um, working for a nonprofit. I, I lost a job, uh, my old high school, I went back to coach and teach at. Um, I lost that job, and then I lost a job as a um, as a teacher and a coach in the Catholic grade school. And so you were losing all these jobs due to your drinking and Adderall use. My Adderall use. So um, I said Adderall started taking more, and then I I ended up uh, yes. So I I would crash and I wouldn't you know show up where I'd be when I couldn't get it. I would just be like a zombie, and I would like you you know I just want to sleep. And so it's not very uh, productive then either. And so, you know, it would be something like the principal's calling me at 8.30, and I was supposed to be at carpool duty at 7.15. And it's like, where are you? Where are you? Your first class is here. Where are you? And I'm like, you know, waking up. And I would always have an excuse, and it was always like, oh, you know, I was sick. I took some cough medicine the night before. So then I ended up, uh, because I felt like I needed it, and I ended up taking scripts from my doctor. Um, what does that mean? I would take prescription, you know, where he fills, writes a prescription on a piece of paper. I would take some of those papers. How did you do I would that? write, because he would just have them on his desk or whatever. So you would, like, how would I you would ever just, be alone with the script pad? Uh, he would, like, get up to go get coffee or go to the bathroom or something. Really? And trusted me. <laughs> and, so, and this was a psychologist or a psychiatrist yeah, or something? Yeah, psychiatrist. Adolescent psychiatrist. Yeah. And so... Uh, We're definitely not going to mention his name. No. Because I don't think they're supposed to be... Letting people steal those things. No, they're, they're not. And he could have gotten in big, big trouble for... So I ended up... Uh, How many did you take? Maybe home? like seven or eight <laughs> different times. What were you thinking when you had those when you got home? You're like, oh my God. So I was just... I don't know what I was thinking, but I, I spent a lot of time making sure that my... Because I would take picture of an actual script that you give one. me yeah, and yeah, to yeah. make sure that I have the So you're into down. forgery? <laughs> yes, I'm into forgery. And I'm thinking that it's harmless and that... You know, uh, <laughs> nobody's being hurt by it or any of that. And it's just, I need it to function. It's a little help. And so one time I go to a Walgreens and I go to fill it. And the lady says, this, it's too soon to fill. Uh, I need to call. I'm calling the doctor to find out why he's writing you another script. He calls the doctor and she, the doctor says, nope, I didn't write that. And then she says, okay, well, just so you know, I'm calling the police and I'm following a, a report. Uh, two weeks later, I had a call from a detective saying, hey. Uh, from what, City of Dallas? City of Dallas. said, come in. I need to talk to you. I went in. And she said, you know, I'm, are you selling them? I was like, no, I just, I've got a problem. Uh, you went to the Dallas Police Department? Uh -huh, I went downtown. With a lawyer? No, with my stepdad, actually, who, uh, he was head of a mental health um, facility or, or group and uh i just i thought i asked him to go with me oh my um, god <laughs> and so she ended up she's like you're not selling this i was like no i just have a problem she's like okay how many times like where did you do this i was like i don't you know 
here seven or eight different times she's like okay that could be a separate felony for each of those here's what i'm going to do we're incredibly busy and we're you're going to have to get processed and go through this uh go to you know and it's a it's a felony it's a um and so she i said okay and she's like i'll call you like i can tell you you seem like a pretty good kid like you're just mixed up and how old were you uh 31 no 30 30 okay and so she was like let's uh uh, we're behind on paperwork. I'm going to call you before I walk the warrant. And walking the warrant means like, hey, they're going to arrest you. Or you, you know, now's the time. So uh, she called me and she said, hey, you know, maybe four months later, it's like, hey, you know, next Monday I'm walking the warrant, so you need to turn yourself in. And so uh, at this point, because I couldn't take Adderall anymore, I went back to drinking and drinking real heavy and just drinking, you know, it was all about changing the way I felt. So she ends up uh, saying she's going to walk the warrant. I'm drinking at my apartment, hold up with the blinds down and in my sad little awful life that, uh, and she, uh, and all of a sudden I, I hear my phone ringing and a knock on the door. And uh, this guy's like, hey, I'm with the Dallas Police Department, your car outside, you have this Volkswagen. I was like, yes, that's my Jetta. Uh, he's like, well, the windows are cracked. So it looks like somebody come in. I need you to come. You know, we, I just need to follow a report and leave. And I walked outside and there's like 12 police officers. Yeah. And they, I heard they do that. I mean, what, what would you, could you have closed the door and said, I'll do it later? Or no, thank you. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know what I could have done. That's yeah. a good, I, I, he was like pleading with me being like, I'm just trying, this is my, I'm about to head home to my here. family. Yeah, I just liar, need, let's get liar, this done. <laughs> I went out there. I was like, you. And so they were supposed to do it on the following Monday. Monday. And she did it early and didn't tell me. I get down to the jail and I call her at like three in the morning. I happen to have her number in my pocket, like in my wallet. And I had saved it. So in case I needed it, I called her. I was like, just so you know, they came and got me. And she was like, I'm so sorry. Like, that's not how that was supposed to go. Well, she was really cool the way, um, and I often think about her and if she saw me now, you know. We should look her up. You should go find her. I should. It wouldn't be difficult. Yeah, I about to say, I don't think it'd be too hard. Yeah, so I should so, tell her what happened to so me. So anyways, you called her, you're like, what happened? She's like, sorry, and then what? And then uh, she's like, I'm so sorry, you're going to have to go, you know. Um, so I... Did deferred. I uh, spent a night in jail, got out, and then just uh, started drinking real heavily. And it got earlier and earlier when I was drinking. So, you know, I, at this point, I'd gotten a job for a roofing company. Uh, a friend of mine's little brother had said, hey, you know, you want to try this out? And I tried it out, and I liked it. I could work my own schedule. I could, you know. Uh, but it was hard. It was tough to make money when you were only working from, like, 10 a.m. to 2 p.m., right? So, you know, I'm uh, commission only, and I'm sleeping to nurse hangovers, and I'm getting done early to, to drink. And uh, it got worse and worse from there. Uh, it's a progressive disease. That's certainly my case. Mine was, you know, real quick, got progressive. And so uh, it all kind of came to a halt when it was summer, summer of 2012, I guess, and I was scheduled to go meet an insurance adjuster at a house in Plano. It's a suburb of Dallas. It's a big two-story roof. 
and the gesture appointment was supposed to be at one. So PM that day, Saturday. So I'm like, okay, here's what I can do. I can drink in the morning. Cause at this point I was drinking in the morning. Uh, I can drink, I can take a nap cause I love to, you know, drink, sleep, drink, sleep. That's a lot of what I did. And, um, the homeowner calls me at like 11 and she's like, Hey, the adjuster's on his way. Can you meet him here? Like he just called, he's coming early. I was like, uh, sure. So I drive over there. I get up on the roof. And the next thing I remember is the ambulance trying to get me to come to. And I was face down in the backyard. I had fallen off a two-story roof in Plano. They, you know, they kept saying, you, you smell like alcohol. Have you been drinking? How much have you had to drink the this morning? The paramedics were saying that? The paramedics were saying what that. What were you drinking, by the way? Were you drinking? Scotch. Oh, jeez. <laughs> Nothing like you probably scotch in the morning. You a little scotch in the morning, yeah. fall off a roof, get the paramedics involved. Yes. So you were acting earlier like we haven't even qualified me yet. I, I think so I remember when I told my story one time, someone coming up to me and they're like, I didn't know if you were a real alcoholic. But now that I hear that you fell off a roof drunk, like, yeah. I think you qualify. So I go to the hospital, is knocked unconscious, so, uh, and I meet my my mom and stepdad there along with my boss. You know, he comes and you know, it's awful. And I'm like, I'm still making it up that like this is just a one time deal. I was drinking the night before, uh-huh. had a friend in town, you know, it's, it's that's what happened. And they were like, sure, whatever. So I can remember this time when the nurse. She asked them to leave. She asked my mom and said that to, to leave the room. She asked my boss to leave the room. And she came and she sat at the end of the bed next to me. And she said, hey, uh, I just want to let you know that, like, there's help available to you if you want it. Um, and she kind of looked around. She kind of said it quietly. And I said, well, I don't need help. I don't have a problem. She goes, well, we always take blood alcohol level. You know, anytime something like that happens, we take your blood alcohol level. And yours was two and a half times the legal limit. So, you know, it was 11 o'clock in the morning, and if you were drinking the night before, it wouldn't be that high. So I said, okay, I'll consider it. You know, she's like, if you need help, let me know. Did she mention the words? No. I think she was waiting for me to just say yes. If I was like, yeah, I I need help, clearly. But I wasn't there yet. And so I was put on probation by the roofing company. During that time, I decided, kind of what I told you earlier with Paul, Decided I didn't want to do this anymore. It didn't really have to do with the work thing. It was just like it quit working. The it didn't. It wasn't work. Alcohol wasn't working anymore. Adderall had stopped working before, and now that I couldn't do that, I was alcohol was the substitute, and uh, it kind of turned on me. Then I was ready. I think at that point. Did you know the last few weeks, months, or years of your drinking that you had a problem, or were you kind of confused or in denial or not that? I was somebody that I never tried to quit. I knew if I tried to quit, like the gig would be up, right? Yeah. And I would be like, oh no, like this, I have a real problem. So I never tried. And so I, I didn't think of myself. I just, I didn't even really think about it. I didn't really know what an alcoholic was. I didn't know what AA was. I didn't know what, you know, any of it was. I just, I just didn't want to do it anymore. I wanted to not do it more than I'd, Wanted to do it, I guess. Did I you have, have a moment of clarity? Was there some, was there a, a time, a window of time, or a so certain? I went. So after about seven days of being in the program of, of Alcoholics Anonymous, I um, I hadn't gotten a sponsor yet. I was reading from the big book, reading the stories in the back. But then I ended up 
being like, I'm, I'm 31 years old. I need to practice self-control. <laughs> like that's really what this issue is. I need to like drink like a gentleman, right? Like drinking scotch in the you morning. You need to get it together. Dude. I need to just, you know, get it together. Uh, I'm I a grown ass man. Like, <laughs> and so I used to think that all the time. Uh, here's what I used to think at the end of my drinking. I was getting wasted all the time. I'd be like, Hey, I talked to myself. I'd be like, yo, Mike, you need to uh, start sleeping during the night right. and be awake during the day. You seem to have that flipped. You need to stop hanging out with all these losers because all your friends are kind of scumbags. Right. You need to stop doing drugs and just drink. Uh, you need to start going to church because you ain't going to church. You need to start going to the gym and working out because you ain't working out. For sure. You need to start taking vitamins because you ain't taking no vitamins. Right. And you need to start... Um, eating better. You eat like a friggin' homeless person, dude. You drive through friggin' Jack in the Box drunk <laughs> and you buy right. two tacos for a dollar. And from what I heard, that's not even real ground beef. That's horse meat. I know. It's like neon orange. Yeah. It doesn't even look like. Yeah. I was meat. like, you eat like a scumbag. That was my five, six, seven point plan of what I needed to do. You yeah. know? And I got sober at 30. You got sober at 31 ish? Yep, 31. Yeah. Okay. I got sober. At, I didn't realize we had that in common. I got sober at 30. You got sober 31, but I was thinking, dude, you are a 30-year-old man in a 30-year-old body, but you are acting like a 14-year-old boy. For sure. So you need to get it together. And I was never able to get it together. I know. I used to go walking. I was like, I need to just walk in the morning. But like, I drink four <laughs> or five beers beforehand, and I go walking, and I feel productive. And so that moment of clarity, did, so I, after seven days, uh, I thought I needed to practice self-control, and I tried drinking, and I got drunk, and then the next morning I was drinking again, and that was enough for me. I said... You know, I can't control this. This is, that's what I thought would happen. And it did. So I went back and. Did you say, God help me? Or did you pray? Or yeah, you- I had said, God help me. And I'd be like, I haven't talked to you in a long, long, long time. But if you're there, like, I need some help right now. Like, I don't know what to do. Like, I'm out of ideas. I'm, I'm kind of dumbstruck. I don't, you know. And so he, uh, that was some clarity. My real moment, clearly, we talked about this earlier, was the fifth step. That was after doing that was when things just really changed for me. First time I'd been honest with another human for a long time. Things that I'd been holding on to forever. Things that I drank and used drugs over, like uh, to cover up that knot in my stomach. And I was honest and upfront about everything. My sponsor said, "You know, is there the one thing that you weren't gonna?" And there was one thing, but then I just said, I'm going to tell you it. And it wasn't even that big of a deal. I just thought it was at the time. And so I told him, he was like, okay, so uh, that was it. And then did went and spent an hour afterwards. I want to ask you a super, super sensitive question, and you do not have to answer this. If I were you, and I was doing the four-step, and I was doing the resentments, my dad would be on there for killing himself. Was your dad on your four-step for, were, yes. you, were you resentful at him? Yes. So my question, okay, I assumed that, that was probably the case. What kind of advice did you get? Did you ever come to any kind of terms with it or peace with it? I mean, what did you, how did you process that when that came up during your fifth step? And you cannot tell me the answer to that question. Tell me to mind my own business. <laughs> or you can tell me the answer what to that question. What an insightful, interesting you're really good at this, by the way. So uh, <laughs> you're asking questions that are, that's a, that's a question that, um, yes. So I, I, the result I was given by my sponsor was like, you didn't have a role in that. 
you didn't cause that. People get sick. But yeah, my dad was on there and he was, uh, God was on there. You know, I needed oh, wow. to. Wow. I don't know if I've ever heard anybody say that. Yeah. I had to. I don't know if I've ever heard anybody say that. God was on your four step uh-huh. under your resentment list. Yep. So if you want to talk to me a little bit more about your dad and a little bit more about God, I've never heard anybody say that. Yeah. So with my dad, it was always, you know, the grieving process is different and interesting. And um, there's times you go through anger, like you, you know, you chicken shit, like you took the easy way out. Like if you just looked, everything was going to be fine. You left us. I had to do some work and it was the forgiveness that allowed me to be at peace, relatively speaking. That knot that was in my stomach all the time had gone away. I go through different phases with my dad as far as sometimes, you know, I can be angry. I can be like Father's Day, remembering him and his birthday and that kind of thing. We always try to tell good stories around those times. The day of his death, October 27th, was a really hard day for me every year. Some days, sometimes it's harder than others and there's really no rhyme or reason but like i've had in the last 25 plus years like man sometimes i've had really difficult times uh with god on there you asked god on my fifth step i you know there's a little bit of the catholic guilt of like by the time i did my fifth step i think i was like four or five months sober the things that i had been told to do like ask god in the morning and thank him at night like it was working i didn't think that was going to work and uh, it was keeping me sober and doing other things during that time, but uh, bringing God back into it. And so I'd put him on there as like unfair of me. Like, uh, you know, I don't think God abandoned me or God left me when my dad killed himself. It was, he was there the whole time. God was. And I just had pushed him aside. And I can still do that. Maybe not to that degree, but I can still, you know. Hey, I've got this, you know, let me handle this. I hope that answers your question. Dude, I've never heard anybody put God on their fist step of, of who they're resentful at. That's super interesting. So let's talk about when you first got into Alcoholics Anonymous. I don't want to paint a little bit better picture of your early sobriety. Can you explain to me, did the AA meetings look and feel the way that you anticipated they might when you arrived or were they totally not what you expected? You know, I'd seen, I guess, maybe on TV, right? Some preconceived <laughs> notions of what that looked like. Me too. And then also, the group that that I go to, there's a podium or a pulpit at the front, <laughs> and it's up on the stage. Yeah. And I thought that uh, you went there anytime you felt like you <sighs> wanted to drink, and you had, you know, you had had a bad day at work, and you're like, man, I'm gonna, I want to drink, and so I need to come to this meeting. And I thought that you would just sit and you would listen to the person up at the pulpit, whoever the leader is, and they would tell you what you needed to hear. And then everybody would line up single file and would walk out the room and leave and, and come back when you, you, know, you thought you were going to drink again. And, and that's what it would look like. And so uh, that clearly wasn't. It's not like that. It's not like that. And so... Uh, that was a pleasant surprise. So what is that pulpit or podium there for? It's for uh, for when they have birthday nights, okay. typically, or speaker meetings. Okay. So it's really just there's a microphone, and, and on the front of it says, by the grace of God. And so that's pretty cool. But it's not used to lecture or, if yeah. that was the case, a lot of us wouldn't 
<laughs> come back. One of my groups that I go to consistently here in Dallas is called the Aquarius Group. And we had apparently a woodworker or a carpenter of some talent or note. And he custom built the Aquarius Group a really cool uh, lectern podium that we could use at birthday night for people to come up and get their chips in front of everybody's celebration or for speaker meetings. And on the front of it in black and gold paint, he painted Expect a Miracle. And I remember sitting in that meeting early in sobriety and looking at that podium and going, what is that for? And why does it say expect a miracle? And then my next thought was, well, that's about what it's going to take for me to stop drinking. Right. That's about what it's going to, that's about the size of the order I'm placing right now. <laughs> if I'm going to be able to stop drinking and using drugs, I need to expect a miracle. And then there's been other times over the last, you know, couple of decades where I've looked at that pulpit during a meeting and it says expect a miracle. And I've just connected with that, that saying in different ways over the years. And it means a lot to me that they took the time to paint that on there. What does the one at the Preston group say? By the grace of God. Okay. And then also somebody had like cross stitched or sewed, mm -hmm. uh, one that says surrender, that's what reminded me of what you just talked about, the expected miracle. I've noted that, and I was like, surrender, what? Okay. <laughs> like, and then it's meant more and more and different things to me as I work this program. Let's talk about AA sponsorship. Can you talk to me about your AA sponsor? How did you get one, and how have they helped you? Sure. Uh, my I was given a recommendation by Tad mm -hmm. uh, to, you know, this guy, Scott. Scott has long-term sobriety. He'll He's kind of hardcore. He'll tell you what you need to hear. You know, I came and said, hey, I need a sponsor. He said, okay, are you willing to do these things? Are you willing to ask God to keep you sober, go to a meeting, read from the big book, thank him at night, that kind of thing. I, you know, I said, sure, I'm willing to do that. So we worked together for a long time. Uh, you know, I had some magical, beautiful moments with him. You know, I've had, like, coaches in the past that have mentored me that have meant a lot, like those father figures Scott fits that. Fit That's that. heavy what you just said. You know that, right? Yeah. Father figures. I've been fortunate enough to have. And so he, he, filled, he fulfilled that. I really, during COVID, was working in this program was hard for me. And I, I drifted away where I, I didn't like going, doing the Zoom meetings. I didn't like. I missed you, man. Yeah. I, knew, I was texting you a couple times. I remember I text that. You, like, yeah. What are you doing? I haven't seen you in a minute. But you were in the middle of a pandemic and you had two small children. Yeah. So talk to me more about that. Was that a scary time? Uh, yes. My wife is immunosuppressed uh, and where she has Crohn's disease, which is mm -hmm. she has to take Remicade infusions, to, um, uh, which weaken her immune system. So it was like real important that we were careful and all that. But it was stressful, you know, to, and with the kids. And, you know, are they going to school or are they not going to school? How are we going to figure that out? All of that, all of those things that you guys you totally. probably dealt with. And so uh, that was tells. a tough time, and I kind of drifted away. I'm notorious for sponsoring myself sometimes. That's the next question. Have you ever sponsored yourself for any extended period of time, and how did that work out for you? Yes, so uh, not well. But, uh, <laughs> you can and report. And I have. So Scott, me and Scott ended up, um, he still speaks to me in the back of my head. I still hear him on with things, but at the same time, um, I felt like I wanted something different, something new. And so, uh, and he's was totally fine with it and he got it and he understood. And um, so Howard became my sponsor. And so that was good. And I've been, as I get busy, I'm like, I'm too busy. So I need to not, yeah. So sponsoring myself never goes well. <laughs> I'm a big, I'm some, I've got, I tell my sponsees like, do as I say, not as I do. Sometimes. Oh, I'm sure they love that. Yeah, yeah exactly. So uh, 
But no, I don't know why the phone gets hard to call uh, and, and do those things. Because our disease wants to isolate us and kill us. That's why it's hard for you to Fair pick enough. up. That's why it's hard for you to pick up the phone because our disease is always working in the background. And its main goal is to isolate us from the group and kill us. And so if it can isolate us from the group by either us developing a distaste for the AA Zoom meetings or developing a distaste for their literature or the theology or the in-person meetings or the personalities within the meetings, then it can isolate us and murder us. Yeah. So I the think sky's blue, the sky's gray. The sky, yeah. yeah. It's anything and everything. And those things are uh, important that I keep that in the forefront. And so not only that, like I didn't, when I don't call my sponsor and I don't think, I don't necessarily feel like I'm going to drink, but like I'm not qualified to handle all this stuff and I need to like, let somebody else hear and then turn it over to God and, you know, let God run with it. And because when I try to run the show, it doesn't go well. I like know you have a big life. You have a big life. From what I know about you, you have a big life. Yeah, just, There's a lot of moving parts. For sure. And I'm in the same boat you are. Right. I'm a father. I'm a husband. I've got a lot of Business moving owner. parts. Yeah. Every day I got yeah. decisions to make, which have impacts on everything that right. happens in my life. So, a lot of times what I try to do is I was like, I just need to stay in the middle of Alcoholics Anonymous. I got to stay grounded so I have a chance to be of service to others and uh, maybe win some battles in all those other areas of my life by having a stable, solid head on my, my body. I have sponsored myself in the past and I did not have a great experience with that either. Cause I would just green light and approve every idea I had. <laughs> I'd be like, right. I'd be like green stamp V you know, I'd be like, go, go, go green light, green light. <laughs> Never really called myself on a lot of stuff, painting myself into a corner on a few different situations. And I was like, yeah, I'm not the best. I'm not the best sponsor of sponsoring myself. So I stopped doing that. What's your game plan for if the desire to drink or use drugs again returns? So my would be call sponsor, pray, get to a meeting and get into service work. That seems to be the thing that misses out. Have you experienced depression or anxiety since you've been sober and how have you coped with it? Yes, I have. Do you remember that huge freeze we had in Dallas that February, middle of COVID? I just got where I was like, my depression, if I, if I get depressed, it's more of like, I don't want to do anything. I can't, it's, you know, I want to sleep. That's all I really want to do. I'm real. Um, and it's, I got to kind of fight to get out of it. And so I turn to people that are more qualified than I am to take care of that kind of thing, like a professional, like a psychiatrist and, and had talked to them and got prescribed medicine and figured out the right amount and what I needed. And, and that helped, but I also had to do things like pray and exercise get out go you know have gratitude lists that's so hard to do yeah it's hard to do at that time and so when you're depressed and that's really the only i mean this was about two years ago and it it hit me i mean i i hadn't felt that depressed in a long time i wasn't like that's a scary time it's a scary time with weird circumstances you had that that gnarly gnarly freeze yes and then you also had covid going and blowing yep you had two young children. Yeah, it was that was the other thing. Like I was, they gave me a ton of anxiety at the time, and I so I worked through it, um, talking to therapists and talking to sponsor and talking to um, my wife, who's very helpful with this stuff. My wife's an alcoholic; she's been sober for uh, ten years or eleven years. Really? And uh, let's talk about that. 
Where yeah. Did, so uh, that was my next question. I just wrote it down right here. I want to talk about your wife. So you, so you're telling me she's an alcoholic in recovery. She's been sober eleven years. You've been sober nine. So talk to me about like how you met her, and was there any recovery overlap with like? Did she ever see you drinking or anything? Where'd you meet her? I met her in the rooms. Uh, I didn't know any of this. Yeah, and so Claire was. I mean, she's a staple at the six p.m. She knows everybody there, and she's been doing it for a long time. She's really into service work. You know, she does the deal. My sponsor was like, I th- she seems to have good sobriety, but like, why is she, you know, hanging out with you? We ended up taking it real slow. And it was kind of like we became friends first. That was the first woman that that had really ever happened with. That We became friends. We took it real slow. She was like super protective of me and my sobriety. I'm a believer that like the disease of alcoholism is progressive. It gets worse, never better. Uh, I think recovery is the same, is progressive in my recovery got you know progressive pretty well so you know my sponsor was not for it he was like take it slow if you're going to do this but so we're like the non-cautionary tale of like this actually has worked and so she had we had these weird coincidences like my dad and her mom were on the same page of their high school yearbook they went to high school together and they're on the same page um her Dad and my stepdad were fraternity brothers at Texas UT. Wow. Uh, so weird coincidences and, and things like that. And so um, that's how we met. That life is like a TV show, dude. <laughs> <laughs> it is just like all the stuff that comes out of your mouth. I know, that's like, that, weird, sounds like right? a, that sounds like a script writer. I know. It's like a weird drama or like a dark comedy. This is interesting that you guys met in the rooms, got married and had babies. So Michael. One of my first questions to you is, do you guys pray and meditate together? Is that a joint venture? Has it ever been a joint venture? Yeah, that's a, no, it it has in the past. We've done that, pray at night before we go to bed. Miss that. We've talked about doing it again. It, you know, I would lead it or she would lead it. It didn't really matter. Um, we have not done any meditation. We should probably... We've talked about doing crank that back up. Crank that back up. That's maybe uh, that's one thing and I love teaching about teaching our kids about spirituality. Totally, you show them that. Um, two things about prayer and meditation with my wife. Uh, she's not an alcoholic. She's not in the program. She doesn't go to Al-Anon meetings. She's beautiful. She's awesome. She's lovely. Here's the deal, though. When we first got married, she knew I was sober and she knew I believed in God and that's you know it's a spiritual program and we didn't talk about it too much, but she right. knew. I pray in the morning and I pray at night every night. I ask God to keep me sober in the morning and then I thank him at night and then I meditate and I do all these things. In early marriage, I was embarrassed about that for some reason. Like I would go in the bathroom to do it. Yeah. And I would close the door. Why? I don't know. I'm just telling you right. the truth. Sure. That's what happened. I would go in the bathroom in the morning and I would close the door and I would get on my knees and I'd say my little prayer like, God, don't let me drink any alcohol today. Direct my thinking put me in a position to help other people, make sure I'm diverse from self-pity, self-seeking motives. 86, 87. Yeah, 86, 87, 88. I would do all that on my knees and back then I would come out like I, like nothing had happened and I hadn't just done that. <laughs> and then at night I'd go in the bathroom and I'd close the door and I'd, I'd, uh, I'd get on my knees and I'd pray and say, thanks for keeping me sober. And then after a while I was like, hey, silly boy, why are you doing that? Why are you doing in the bathroom? Why are you closing the door? You're married to this chick. And, and then I, my answer to myself was, I'm embarrassed. And I was like, why are you embarrassed, man? And I, I worked through that and I eventually just confronted her and approached her and asked her, 
Hey, do you think that you maybe would have liked to join me in prayer and meditation sometime in the morning or at night? Would that, would that freak you out? Would that be, would you be okay with that? Is that weird? And she'd be like, yeah, whatever, dude, whatever you want to do. And I was like, okay, that wasn't as big a deal as I thought. So slowly by little, we started to pray together. We never really meditated that much together. Maybe we should get into that a little bit more. Maybe that's something I'll do in the rest of 2022, rolling into 2023. Maybe we'll get into meditation sessions together more, but she sees me do it. And what I'm trying to do is model good behavior or model the type of behavior that I want my kid to see. Right. And then I want my wife to see. So I do pray and meditate with her now. And the last thing I want to say is now what we do, our little family tradition now is, especially when things get real busy and real hectic, is we always meet at the front door before we leave and we get in a circle and we hold hands and we pray before we leave the house. 95% of the time, I'm the one that leads the prayer. Mm-hmm. My wife stands there. My 12-year-old son stands there. I'm there. And then we've got a three-year-old golden retriever named Bali who always gets in on the prayer circle. And she doesn't have hands or arms, so she uses her ears <laughs> as her hands and arms. So I'll grab her right ear, and my son will grab her left ear. And so she's part of the prayer circle. I always start the family prayer every morning just on the inside of our front door before we leave the house. And I always start like this. I always say, God, please don't let me use any alcohol or drugs today. I always start with that. I say, God, please don't let me use any alcohol or drugs today. Please keep me sober. Please bless my wife, bless our cars, bless our opportunities, bless Michael's school and his instructors. If one of us is going to the doctor that day, I'll mm-hmm. be like, please bless the doctors that are going to work on Kristen today, and thank you for this X, Y, Z. Put us in a position to be of service to other people. Those are the things that I say, and it's a real interesting way to start the day praying with your kids and your wife and your golden retriever. That's, that's pretty amazing to think about before you guys leave your house, like on the steps of get, of going out into the world. Uh, that's really, that's a beautiful thing. We, I model that, you know, we pray at night. We pray with, I pray with my son when he's going to sleep and, um, we say something special each time, but, uh, uh, you know, bringing everybody into it is pretty cool. And it's fun. To, and I, I hijacked all that from Alcoholics Anonymous. Right. I hijacked the circle. I hijacked the holding hands. I hijacked the talking to God. I hijacked the uh, page 87, put me in a position, be of service, uh, direct me some self-pity and self, you know, self-seeking self sure. motives, you know, all that stuff that I just, I'm just parroting or modeling the behavior that I learned in the rooms of recovery, which has been a blessing. And that's a long way for me to come. I don't want to talk about it right now. Maybe I'll talk about it on another podcast, but there's a thing called the pendulum and the pendulum swings back and forth. And so when I, that story I just told you about the golden retriever, the 12 year old son, the wife and praying before we leave, that's one swing of the pendulum, but all the way on the other side of the swing of that pendulum is who I used to be. Right. And that's a long way away. That is a long way away. And that's coming from a very dark place all the way over to this new place that I'm at right now. And I never thought I could get there. I never thought I deserved to be there. I never thought I would find my way there. Because I used to drink every four hours. Yeah. About every four hours is the longest I could go yeah. without putting something in my body to change the way I feel. Let's turn our attention to the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. They're printed on that piece of paper there in front of you. Can you pick out one of those that you would like to talk about or highlight anything special? I think we've already talked about four and five with you. So... Um, anything else on there that jumps out you jumps out at you besides four and five? Step two was was very impactful. Can you came, read it? Came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. 
it took me a little while before I realized. I thought it said wood. And then I was like, oh, it could. And I was like, mind blown. Like, I, yeah. I've got some work to do. I've got some, you know, things to turn over and that kind of thing. So uh, that's really all I wanted. I wanted to have a little bit of peace of mind. And I just wanted the pain to be dulled a little bit. Like, I was in so much pain. We have such a, such a high threshold of pain then. Drinking every four hours, what you just described, uh, you know, things like that that would... Um, I could get myself in a lot of pain. And then uh, now I, if I feel a little bit of my pain threshold is not very high these days. And so I wanted the pain to be dulled. And then when I saw it was working for you guys, it made me think that, hey, maybe this could work for me. My dad is a good example of this. Like, you know, pick yourself up by the bootstraps. You know, he didn't in the end, but that was always his like moniker is like, get back up all that, you know, it's, that kind of thing. It's maybe generational or um, I think it was baby boomer stuff. And so <laughs> That's what I was told too, right? And so it, uh, and so the fact that like it wasn't going to be me taking care of this was actually quite a bit of relief. I was like, I don't good. Like I don't think I can do it. So let's find something else that can make me. You know, the things like getting on a roof uh, drunk is not normal, sane behavior. And so I had all this evidence of that my thinking and uh, my attitudes, my actions were all uh, insane. I needed something, and it wasn't going to be me. And so it's neat to look at present day. I ended up becoming vice president of that same roofing company. I ended up that same boss that came to meet me at the hospital. Uh, we work, we're partners now with a new, you know, we created you know, a, a new outfit and a new company and and I got to go make some pretty cool amends to that boss. Do you want to talk about one of those amends? Sure. The one that was really impactful was that doctor that I'd taken scripts from. I was wondering how the end of that story worked out because the pharmacist called him. Uh-huh. How, did he get in trouble? Tell me about all that. He did not get in trouble, but he emphasized to me how he very easily could get in big trouble. A thousand and so, percent. And so I jeopardized. I mean, he had been doing what he's been doing for like 45 plus years. I mean, he was very established, very good at what he did. And so... So set it up for me. We were sober for a year or two and you reached uh, back? It was uh, not even a year. It was more of the... I think it was maybe like nine months is about when I did my ninth step. And you're like, can I, you called him and said, can I talk to you? And I called him. I said, hey, can I come? And I owed him money. So you owed from, him money. I owed him $200. So I was like, I'll, I'm ready to make this financial amends, but also... And I you know, told him, Yeah. Um, here's what I did. Here's why I'm wrong and what can I do to make it right. It meant a lot to him that I was that I'm sober. He didn't think that that would, would happen, and that he told you know, me he went to jail and all uh-huh, that. Uh huh. And he knew all that. And I said, I'm you know I'm working this program, and I've been sober nine months, and my life has gotten so much better. And here's the money I owe for previous visits. We got to hug, and how long were we there? Fifteen minutes. Yeah, maybe so. In and out. Yeah. That was my next question is how did the legal stuff work out with all that the felonies and getting arrested? Yeah, so they ended up charging me with one felony. um, And I was because I didn't really have a record before that. I did defer and I did everything I was supposed to do. I did all the community service. I did all the um, so uh, I was on probation. I was taken off that they said 
you know, you've done everything and everything was expunged and that's I'm, what I was going to say. They I'm got good. Rid of it. Yeah. So it could have been a lot worse. I mean, that could have been, that could have ruined my life if, if, and if that detective wanted to do that, what they call it, what was a forgery or uh, it is falsifying a s- controlled. Yeah. E. So controlled substance controlled falsification substance. Yes. of a uh, script. They frown upon it. <laughs> They're not into that. No state of Texas has, uh, Issues with that. And so I got enough pain. I was willing to do something different eventually. Why is going to meetings important? The first year of sobriety, I was at at least one meeting a day, usually two, sometimes three. And then I got all this stuff. I got the wife, the kids, the the good job, all of that thing. And then I, you know, I I have times where I'm like, I'm too busy. Longest I've been without me, maybe three weeks. And that's uh, not good for me. And so I, I need probably two to three meetings a week to be able to like not want to snap at people and to you know work well with others and and all of that kind of thing and so pandemic was hard for a number of reasons but that was one of them i just didn't feel connected and you lose connection to answer your question as far as why is why are meetings important i hear what i need to hear like i feel like god speaks through you and i get to hear that kind of stuff and so and there's some accountability where it's like you know hey i'm gonna see my sponsor i'm gonna see people i want to familiarize our listeners with what the promises are they're out of the big book of alcoholics anonymous and these are supposed to come true in our lives when we're about halfway through working the ninth step so here we go i'm going to read them and then you can give an example of one of these that you're into if we are painstaking about this phase of our development We will be amazed before we are halfway through. We're going to know a new freedom and a new happiness. We will not regret the past nor wish to shut the door on it. We will comprehend the word serenity and we will know peace. No matter how far down the scales we have gone, we will see how our experience can benefit others. That feeling of uselessness and self-pity will disappear. We will lose interest in selfish things and gain interest in our fellows. Self-seeking will slip away. Our whole attitude and outlook on life will change. Fear of people and economic insecurity will leave us. We will intuitively know how to handle situations which used to baffle us. We will suddenly realize that God is doing for us what we cannot do for ourselves. Are these extravagant promises? We think not. They are being fulfilled among us sometimes quickly, sometimes slowly. They will always materialize if we work for them. So which one of those promises would you like to highlight? We will intuitively know how to handle situations which used to baffle us all situations baffled me beforehand (laughs) so how do i get out of bed i mean how do i you know i used to freak out about getting the mail and i I was so scared of what was going to be so you just didn't answer it didn't or i just put it away put it aside and just you know things like that going outside to get the mail would, would baffle me and so um i feel like now life has slowed down so much like i used to just be running around like a chicken with my head cut off i was trying to put out fires and i was trying to you know not do this and not do that and get by with doing this and get by with doing that now it's really slowed down and i and again i'm not some guru but i compare it like michael jordan talks about what being in the zone is like Mm -hmm. and he talks about how the basket just seems like eight times as big as it is and everything has just in slow motion when he comes down and he pulls up for a jump shot or whatever. And I kind of feel like that's what sobriety has been like, where I have time to like make my decision or I have time to pray or do something, you know, and things have really slowed down. And I feel like uh, I don't get baffled all that much these days. 
So Phil Jackson was the coach of Michael Jordan. You just mentioned him. And so one of Phil Jackson's approaches was to recommend books to his uh, players. And so early in my sobriety, I idolized Michael Jordan and the Chicago Bulls and what he was doing on the athletic court. And I was like, wow. And I heard about Phil Jackson and he recommended a book uh, to Michael Jordan to get him to the place to train his mind, going back to exactly what you were just talking about. And he recommended a book to him called Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind. It's called Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind. Write that down. And that's the first book that I bought in sobriety. I think I had like seven months sober. And I was like, Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind. Let me go buy that book that Phil Jackson recommended to Michael Jordan to teach him how to get into a Zen state in front of 16,000 people and right. silence the noise and focus on the basket and make the basket look eight times bigger than it is. And then uh, I listened to a few interviews about Michael Jordan uh, praising that book. And so my experience is that uh, I still have that book. That's cool. And I do read it occasionally and I do think about Phil Jackson and I do think about Michael Jordan. Do you have anything that you've heard or said in an AA discussion meeting that was so profound it changed your life forever? People talk about this guy. I, he had passed away by the time I'd gotten into the rooms. They still refer to him that every time he shared, he would say, my biggest problem is not my biggest problem. My biggest problem is how I feel about my biggest problem. <laughs> and that was mind-blowing to me. You should steal that and start saying that. Right? I mean, I feel like I need to quote him, and he's not here with us, but I always he hear He passed you know, away, that guy? Yeah. Who was it? Do you remember? Oh, uh, what is his name? Scott can tell you, or some yeah. of those old I used to sit in meetings with that timers. guy. Okay. Yeah, he would say my biggest problem. He would end his talk, his a the end of his every AA show, he'd be like, my biggest problem is not my biggest problem. My biggest problem is how I feel about my biggest and problem. That really resonated <laughs> with me because I like to, you know, I can complicate things. The other th was a mentor of mine. He uh, was a gruff, older man that uh, really deep, scraggly voice. He just passed away. He was uh, a former like bank robber and, you know, was carried guns and was a scary guy before he got sober and then he got sober and um anyway i was complaining about in a meeting about how you know this higher power i'm not finding it i'm looking for you know when are they when's there going to be like something that's like going to shoot out of the sky and tell me that like my higher power's there and then that was maybe like three or four weeks into sobriety and he came up to me after the meeting i used to go eat lunch with those guys kind of a group of gentlemen that uh older guys that I was kind of like a little puppy dog who would follow around and uh, would go to lunch and so I went up to him I was going to ask him where they're going to lunch today and he just comes up and he doesn't say anything he doesn't answer my question about where you're going to go lunch he puts his finger in my chest and he says you better find God or you can kiss your ass goodbye in this thing and he turned around and walked away and uh, he later on became and that resonated with me it's like holy shit like that I need okay, like I need to, all right. And like that, that resonated with me. And he later on became like a, a mentor of mine very much. So he gave me his first year chip. When I got one year, that chip was in my pocket when I got married, um, just to remind me of how important sobriety is. And that's a, one of my most favorite possessions I have.
do you and your wife pick up yearly anniversary chips? Do Absolutely. You go to birthday? Are you, have your kids come to those celebrations and will they when they're old enough? Yeah, that, uh, that just gave me goosebumps. Yes. So not, they haven't yet. And we've kind of been toying with that. Uh, my oldest is five now. They know. We explain. We have to go to meetings. And here's why we have to go to meetings because... You know, we drank too much. We drank alcohol, made us sick, and yeah. we need to. In order to stay healthy, we need to go to meetings, and so they get that. And so I think we will come back from Disneyland on Sunday. Uh, we're going to try to go, and I don't. I think we'll probably bring our oldest. I think he's ready. I don't. You know, a three year old won't know what's going on. No, like, but our oldest would probably yeah at least stay for for her. Um, yeah, and so they'll like the free cake. Right. Yeah. 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 You can also tell the chairperson, I've got a three-year-old and a five-year-old. Can I go first? Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. You don't have to wait the whole time. I mean, when I used to take my young son to those meetings, I was like, I know my last name starts with a Q and I'm supposed to be going on around nine 30 tonight and it's seven o'clock now, but can you maybe move me up to the front so I can get out of here? We were talking about stuff that you've heard in meetings that resonated with you. And I have an iPhone in my notes section of my iPhone. I always pick it up and I write notes when I hear something in a meeting that touches my heart. And I heard somebody in a meeting the other day say, secrets are like calluses on the heart. Collect enough of them and your hardened heart won't feel a thing. And so for me, that means I'm as sick as my secrets and I've got to have someone in the program that I'm 100% honest with. And that is my sponsor, Scott, because I'm honest with him on a gut level. He knows everything about me and uh, he shares with me what he wants to about his life. And we, we have a relationship to where I don't have to keep secrets from him. So that's, that's a really good thing. Let's talk about service work for a minute. What is the value of service work in the program and what ways are you giving back to help the newcomer? I know you were doing some jail team stuff. Service work is kind of ebbed and flowed as far as I guess like what you know you could look out and see like okay I was going to take uh, meetings to a hospital and then I was you know doing the jail thing and then sometimes I wasn't doing either of those and but like I have sponsees and I'm working with them or I'm a big believer that service work can take many many different forms and that it doesn't necessarily have to be me helping out an alcoholic like it can be me just doing the next right thing when I leave here and I let somebody cut in in front of me or you know that kind of thing so I feel like there's a lot of opportunities for service work and I try to take them like I said earlier the book talks about it the big book about when all else fails like turning your attention to another alcoholic will take care of them that's always been my case my brother's got six years of sobriety now my brother was one of the low bottom drunks that I've seen and uh, for a long time since he was like 15 uh-huh. in and out of rehabs and, and those kind of things. And, you know, he was the one that, you know, you probably didn't think that there was a chance. And it was always just like, you know, I was just told just pray for him and be the best example of this program that you can be. Mm-hmm. And so I think he saw and uh, he started going to meetings and working the steps and, uh, and his life, just like mine, just like yours, like got better and better and so uh, he liked it and continued to do that and now he's one of the best examples of this program of anybody I know do you have any parting thoughts for our audience I hope people got out of my story expect a miracle like that's really what it was all about I was somebody that I couldn't not drink and uh, use drugs and all of that kind of thing and then uh, something came in my life and 
higher power and and that's really what it's all about peace of mind and serenity now so i hope people that like if you're newer and it hasn't happened for you yet or you're still have trouble like seeing a billboard of an alcohol sign and it makes you want to drink or something like that those kind of things is like stick with it because there will be a time when somebody like myself that could not not use drugs or alcohol suddenly didn't need it anymore not only that but like had all these other areas in their life that got so much better that as a result of that. So I hope for those people that are relatively new and are like waiting for that white light, that kind of thing with the higher power and it hasn't happened yet to be patient and it will happen. And so it's a, a wonderful life. Everything I have is a result of working this program and I wouldn't have kids, wife, you know, all those things, house and, <laughs> and, you know, I don't uh, think you would either. Not in a great way. <laughs> no, not in the same none manner. Of that. No. So, um, all the good things in my life are as a result of this program. It's something that I need to still, like, I still have to, you know, I love that you do the same things that you did when you first got sober. Ask God to keep you sober. Thank him at night. I'm th- those things are, um, it's nice to be reminded about that. And I need to continue to make those a priority because if I put anything in front of it, I could lose it. That's the message I received from a lot of people in AA. And I love what you said. A couple of comments on that one. um, Yes, I still do everything that I do when I got sober. Plus now I do more. Yeah. And Scott D, my sponsor and your ex-sponsor always talks to me about that. And he tells me that his sponsor tells him the longer that you sober, the more you have to do. I know. The longer that you're sober, the more you have to do. Don't you hate hearing that? It's one of those paradoxes <laughs> of this program. Like, sur- surrender to win. Yeah. It's like, I, yeah. what? I have to do. But uh, you have I to do more to it. continue getting what you've been getting. So I think that's why people with long-term sobriety yeah. continue to do what they do. I agree. I agree with that. And I feel like the rewards of doing more the longer that you're sober are kind of ethereal and kind of concrete. And what I mean by ethereal is the way that I feel inside of my own skin. You can't see that. Right. Nobody can see the way that I feel on my own skin, but just to report back to you, the ethereal rewards of working the steps in order with a sponsor, having a spiritual experience, having a profound personality change, it allows me to be comfortable in my own skin almost all the time which is a blessing to me. I want to talk to the listener a little bit about what you just said about being patient about getting sobriety and what what you want people to take away from your story about hope that if you can do it, they can do it. And if they're not there yet, to just be patient and hold on and wait uh, for that divine intervention because that's what I needed in my life and that's what I received on on October the 9th of the year 2000 at 9.30 p.m., when I said, God, please help me, I received divine inter- intervention. And the, the weird thing about that, when I look back on that day that, I, day that I got sober, in hindsight, two weird things about that. One, I was super, super drunk and super, super high when I said that prayer. Wasted, dude. I was wasted when I said that. I said, God, please help me. The other thing that's weird to me about October the 9th of the year 2000 at 9.30 p.m. in Carlsbad, California, the day and the time that I got sober, is that I did not know when I woke up that morning that that was going to be the day. I didn't know. Nobody Mm -hmm. texted me. Nobody emailed (laughs) me. Nobody alerted me. Nobody said, hey, hey, your big day's tomorrow. 
right. your big day, your divine intervention today is tomorrow. I thought that October the 9th of 2000 was going to be another shitty day in a long line of shitty days in a progression to another shitty day the next day. day. Yeah, exactly. Like that movie Groundhog Mm -hmm. Day. My world kept getting smaller and darker, smaller and darker, smaller and darker. But I wasn't even looking for sobriety. Same. I wasn't looking for it, dude. I was just trying to survive. Right. I was just trying to survive and do what I needed to do to get numb. Mm Mm-hmm. And for me, I used alcohol and drugs. And so when I look back on it with hindsight, I I can clearly see what happened now is that I was not paying attention to my higher power. I wasn't. I wasn't paying attention to God. And so what he did is he used my alcohol and drug addiction to get my attention. And then once he got my attention, he's like, you you, you feel me? You feel that pain? You got enough pain? And I finally got enough pain. I was like, yeah, I guess I'm in enough, enough pain, man. God help me. And then he slid me over to Alcoholics Anonymous. And that's where I met him. Mm-hmm. You know, that's where I, he, he, he got me to Alcoholics Anonymous and Alcoholics Anonymous got me to him. So it was a really cool way that everything worked. But yeah, if you're out there listening, take my story, take Jordan's story, uh, take his brother's story to heart as far as if we can do it, you can do it. Please be hopeful. Know that it can come at the weirdest time, at an unexpected time, and it can come when you're super high and super drunk. It can come on the floor of a jail cell. Mm -hmm. It can come in the back of a squad car. It could come... I don't know, man. It can come any time. Where was your moment of clarity? Where was that? Where were you? At my apartment, and it was uh, it was a Saturday, and I was going to do what I do normally on Saturday. I was going to drink by myself and watch football and fall asleep and wake up and watch some more college football. And, you know, it was just another kind of groundhog dismal day. I had plenty of alcohol in the fridge. and Me too. Um, all of that was, and I just, for some reason, woke up and... Um, I want to do something different. And same like you, I, it wasn't like a, you know, I want to get clean sober and I want to, you know, it was more just, I want, let's lessen this pain. Like I'm in a lot of pain. And so anything that can do that, I'm all for it. So then I got to the program, started working. And so then I was like, I'm willing to, you know, if you want me to go stand on my head in the corner, I'll do that. Like whatever, whatever I need to do to continue to get this. So I'm always told my misery can be returned if I would like. So if I want to go back to that life of, you know, held up in my apartment with the blinds closed and drinking Keystone at <laughs> seven in the morning, uh, I'm, I can always go back to that. Do you want to give any kind of special shout out to your loved ones? Tell them you love them and anything you want to say to your family? Claire, Teddy, Patrick, I love you very much. That's and I'm grateful for you guys. Well, this has been a very moving experience, and I appreciate you joining us here today on Sober Shares. You're doing quite a service. Uh, I hope you realize that you're getting to reach a lot of people and that you're not getting anything from this other than that. I appreciate just the opportunity to be a small part of it. We're in the first hundred years of Alcoholics Anonymous, and so what I'm trying to do is create an audio repository that will live for hundreds of years. I want people to listen to this in 100 years, 200 years, 300 years, 400 years, and say, okay, wow, listen to these people talk about Alcoholics Anonymous and recovery within the first 100 years of AA. That's what they were talking about. That's what they were thinking. That's what they were doing. And I would like it to go on and live and help people in future generations because it certainly helped me. It certainly helped my family. If I did not have this available to me, I would be either in jail 
or I would be dead or I would be in an institution. Right. And I don't really have a lot of more. There's really not a lot of other places for me to end up with, with the way that I drank into drugs. Mm-hmm. Because, like I said, I was running out of altitude, airspeed, and ideas at the end of my drinking. <laughs> I was running out of altitude, airspeed, and ideas. I was crash landing into Alcoholics Anonymous. And was diving. Yeah, and what I was doing at the end of my drinking was uh, against my will. I didn't want to be this dude, or, or I just didn't want any of this. But I, I just kept stacking bad decision on top of bad decision yeah. on top of bad decision, and I couldn't stop. And I had to uh, come back into Alcoholics Anonymous, get a new sobriety date, a new set of books, a new desired chip, a new sponsor, and and try again to get sober. And this time, it is stuck. So we love you guys out there. Thank you for listening to this episode. It's been full of solid gold. And I want to read one thing for you right now. It's called A Vision for You. It's from page 164 in our big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. Our book is meant to be suggestive only. We realize we only know a little. God will constantly disclose more to you and to us. Ask him in your morning meditation what you can do each day for the man who is still sick. The answers will come if your own house is in order. But obviously you cannot transmit something you haven't got. See to it that your relationship with him is right and great events will come to pass for you and countless others. This is the great fact for us. Abandon yourself to God as you understand God. Admit your faults to him and to our fellows. Clear away the wreckage of the past. Give freely of what you find and join us. We shall be with you in the fellowship of the Spirit, and you will surely meet some of us as you trudge the road of happy destiny. May God bless you and keep you until then. If you need to get in touch with Jordan or get in touch with me for some listener feedback with comments, questions, or suggestions, please reach out to Mike at SoberShares.com, and we'll see you all on the next episode of SoberShares. Thank you.